Good morning. Well, let's start by opening our Bibles to John 12, 44 through 50. John 12, 44 through 50. And we're going to use this section to launch into our message this morning. And this is Jesus speaking. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore I say as the Father has told me. This was Jesus' final public appearance before he would be imprisoned by Rome. So Jesus pleads, he exhorts the people to turn from darkness and follow the light. Jesus gives the clarion call for life. That salvation, that true freedom is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And after he preached so powerfully, we would assume that many would turn to him in droves, that many would sacrifice everything to worship Christ, that many would be cut to the heart, convicted, and repent of their sin and turn to Jesus for salvation. But if we look back, just a few verses in John 12, 37, we see the sad reality. We actually learn that his message fell on deaf ears. John 12, 37 says this, Though he, that is Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Jesus' message wasn't resonating with the people. Maybe Christ's message wasn't relevant enough. Or maybe Christ's message wasn't entertaining enough for the people. Maybe Christ forgot to include drama skits with his sermon presentation so people would stay attentive to what he was saying. Of course, I'm being facetious because Christ was the Son of God who was perfect in all of his ways as we just sang about, right? And even in his preaching, every word that came out of his mouth was the exact right words for the people to hear. As our verse said in John 12, 49, it says this, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So the question is, why? 
Why didn't the people reject Christ? I mean, we would think that after watching a a blind man receive his sight or watching a man being raised from the grave just by sheer amazement, by shock and awe that they would believe in him and follow him, but that wasn't the case. That's not what we find out. Their lack of faith, their hardness of heart, their continued blindness just seems to lead to deeper darkness, to further blindness. Well, this morning we will see the painful reality of why Israel didn't and couldn't turn to Christ. It is a sad and sobering section of Scripture that dives deep into human depravity, into the human sinfulness of mind. And at the same time, we see God's sovereignty working. We will also learn how Israel's demise brought hope to many. Israel's rejection of Christ brought salvation to the Gentiles. And then finally, we'll see the insidiousness of sin, the hardness of heart that leads to all sorts of struggles, including the sin of fear of man or people-pleasing. So let's go back a few verses and start in John 12, verses 37 through 43. This is where our main text, John 12, 37 through 43, where I've entitled the sermon, The Rejected God. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. Father, we recognize that we're here for your glory. Father, I ask that you give us wisdom. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your truths. As we see the chosen people reject you. Help us, Father, to live for your glory and be empowered with your spirit. May your word work mightily on our hearts this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to jump right into point number one because we got a lot of points this morning. So point number one, or observation number one, says this. Israel's rejection of Christ was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Let me say that again. Israel's rejection of Christ was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Let's read John 12, 37 and the first part of 38. And it says this, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that, verse 38, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So Israel wouldn't believe in Christ even though he had done so many miracles and signs before them. And John points back to Isaiah and says, this is why the Jews could not believe in Christ. Let's read it again, verse 38, the first part. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. It was a fulfillment of what Isaiah said 700 years earlier about Christ. And the second half of John 12, 38 is almost a direct quote of Isaiah 53 when John says this, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
So John goes back to Isaiah 53 because it prophesies about the rejection of Christ. But it also says why the Israelites would reject Christ. So let's look at Isaiah 53, 1 and 2, since John does. And they'll be on the screens behind us. And this is verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Observation number two. Christ was born to be rejected. Observation number two says that Christ was born to be rejected. Let's look at verse 2 again of Isaiah 53. And it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, which is saying that Christ wasn't born like other people that were in royalty. Which, it's saying he wasn't born into royalty. He wasn't born in the palace. I mean, his parents were Mary and Joseph. And Joseph, we remember, was a carpenter. So Jesus came from a humble Jewish family. And because of this, this is one of the reasons why Israel rejected him. So rejection number one, Christ was born into an average Jewish family. Rejection number one says that Christ was born into an average Jewish family. But then let's go back to Isaiah 53, 2, the second part, which says this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So this verse is pretty much saying that Jesus wasn't really good looking. The pictures we see of him being this fair-skinned, blue-eyed, nice-looking guy just isn't true. It's not true. He wasn't attractive. There wasn't anything physically appealing about his appearance, we learn from Isaiah 53.2. In other words, many of us politely would say that Jesus must have had a really good personality, right? Right? But this leads to rejection number two. Israel rejected Christ because he looked too ordinary to be a Messiah. Rejection number two says that Christ looked too ordinary to be the Messiah. But right under rejection number two, we have rejection number three from the Israelites. Christ didn't act like the Messiah the Jews expected. Christ didn't act like the Messiah the Jews expected either. We know from other scriptures that the Jews were looking for a Messiah to be a political leader, a savior, a Messiah that would free them from the Roman Empire, right? But Christ's kingdom wasn't of this world. It was otherworldly. Christ came to glorify the Father by dying a brutal death on the cross and three days later rise again to bring many to salvation, to bring many to the kingdom of God. So what was the outcome? What was the response of the Jews to Christ being Messiah? Well, I think John 1.11 says it clearly. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
They rejected Christ like they rejected God's prophets of old. But this leads to observation number three. Israel was fully responsible for rejecting Christ. Observation number three says that Israel was fully responsible for rejecting the Son of God, Christ. Israel was culpable for their actions. Christ revealed himself plainly to the Jews, and they had no interest in following a Messiah like Christ. They didn't want a Savior who said, love God and others the way you love yourself. They didn't want to follow a Messiah who said, to live means you must die first. They didn't want to submit to Lord who said to first, to you have to become last. I wonder as we think about Christ as Messiah, do we want to follow a Christ like that? And we may say, of course, that's why we're all here gathered this morning, right? But we could be here because of a whole slew of different reasons, right? Besides loving Christ. I mean, we could be here because our spouse made us come this morning. Or we could be here because we want to be a good example for our children. Or we could be here this morning because we think it's just the right thing to do on Sunday mornings, go to church. Or we could be here because somehow we think going to church equals going to heaven. And these reasons are much different than coming because we love Christ. Paul said, to live is Christ. It wasn't a drudgery or burden to bear. It wasn't, oh, to live is Christ. That's not what it was. It was to live is Christ. That was Paul's passion. It was his, his plea. Christ was Paul's joy. Christ was Paul's reason to get up in the morning. Christ was Paul's zeal and desire for life. Christ was Paul's reason to worship when he was sitting in prison, or when he was beaten for his faith. Is Christ our joy this morning? Is Christ what we live for? Well, let's go back to our passages where we're in John 12, 39. But to give us context, I'll go back to verse 37. And it starts out by saying, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. That's the Jews. They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he, that's God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Which leads to observation Number four, God's sovereignty was at work with Israel rejecting Christ. Let me say that again. God's sovereignty was at work with Israel rejecting the Son of God, Christ. What we see is that Israel was fully responsible for not following Christ, but under their denial of Christ, we see that this was part of the sovereign plan of God all along. This is comparable to what we see with the crucifixion of Christ, right? The Jews, the Romans, were guilty for crucifying Christ, but we know that it was part of God's plan all along. We can look at this in Acts 2, 22 and 23. We can see 
man's responsibility and God's sovereignty working together. Where Peter is letting the Israelites know that Christ's blood is on their hands. And he says this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as yourselves, you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility are not pitted against one another, but they work harmoniously with each other. The people who crucified Christ did it because they wanted to. And at the same time, God ordained such an act to occur. So you may be thinking, wow, this is really interesting information that you're telling us, but it is possibly a little depressing to see that Israel rejected the Messiah, the chosen people, right? And to know also that God sovereignly was a part of that. But actually, Terry, what does this have to do with me? I mean, I am here ready to be exhorted by the Word of God, challenged by the Word of God, and you're sharing some really important factual information that's probably really important. But how does this connect with me this morning? How does this help me in my everyday life? Well, I'm glad you guys asked that question. That's really a good question to ask. So I will give you two quick takeaways to sort of connect the dots and bring the theological down to the practical. Takeaway number one, Israel's blindness brought us sight. Israel's blindness brought us sight. And specifically, if we had an extra four hours, which maybe we do today, an extra four hours, we could go through Romans chapters 9 through 11, which explains how God had the Jews reject Christ in order to allow the Gentiles to become children of God as well. But for time's sake, I'm only going to look at one or two passages in Romans 11. And it says this, For just as you, the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy because of their, that's Israel's, disobedience. So they, Israel, too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, which are the Gentiles. So we, church, were the disobedient, we were the foreign people, we were the Gentiles these verses are speaking about. We were the far away from God people. And yet Israel's rebellion against God opened the door to the Gentiles. That's what it's saying. And this is why God's plan, this is what his plan was from the beginning, to open up salvation to all nations, to go beyond the boundaries of Israel. And we, church, are recipients of God's glorious plan. Amen? As Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 tells us, He, that is God the Father, chose us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love. That is, God the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His, that's God the Father's will, to the praise of His glorious 
grace. I wonder if we realize the blessings, the grace, the love that has been poured out on us to now be called children of God. So we see also, church, that we weren't mistreated stepchildren of God because we were adopted into the family. But we are fully and wholly loved by God. And it says we were chosen before the foundations of the world. That means each one of us were chosen before we were even a thought. That's good news. We are loved. We are cared for. We can have confidence if we have turned to Christ in repentance and belief in his son. We will be called children of God. Takeaway number two. God is working in the details of our life. Takeaway number two says that God is working in the details of our life. God was intricately involved in what happened with the Jews rejecting Christ, and he is just as involved in our life as well. We could go to various passages, but we could look at um, Acts 17.26 that says what? God determined the times set for us, the exact places where we should live. And then if we went to Proverbs 16.9, it says, The heart of man plans his ways, but it is the Lord who establishes our steps, right? So we see, Scripture tells us that God is taking us places. He is having us move here. He is having us talk to this person. But he also, we see in Proverbs 16, that he is guiding us, that he is working in us. It's not just outside of us. But he is bringing his purposes to fruition by working through us, the scriptures say. God is personally involved in the details of our life. And he is working for our good and his glory. I wonder as you're at home, or you're in your workplace, or out with friends, or possibly you move from one place to another, do you recognize the fingerprints of God are all over your life if you are a child of God? Well, let's go back to our main section. And we're now in John 12, verse 41. John 12, 41. I'll start in verse 37 again. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For Isaiah said, God, or he, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And then Isaiah, and then verse 41, I mean, then John 12, 41, is sort of an odd passage. It's a little obscure at first, a little hard to understand, a little ambiguous when it says this, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory spoken of him. But to understand verse 41 of John 12, you got to follow me here. To understand John 12, 41, we have to realize that verse 40, which says again, 
He has blinded their eyes, has hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them, is a passage that is found in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6 is one of those amazing passages in Scripture. I wish we could use the whole time to just talk about Isaiah 6. But it's, it's where Isaiah has this unbelievable vision of God, right? And for us to really understand why John refers to Isaiah 6, I'm going to have to re- read a lot of Isaiah 6 to give some context so we actually understand what John is saying here. So it's going to be on the screens behind us, but I'm going to read Isaiah 6, 1 through 10. Isaiah 6, 1 through 10. And it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I get a little excited, sorry. And the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah now, after he sees this vision, I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then, this is Isaiah, said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So Isaiah gets a glimpse of all of God and all his glory. And with this vision of God, Isaiah volunteers to preach a message of the sad reality that Israel will further stray from God. That Israel's heart will further be hardened against God as Isaiah preaches the word of God to them. And again, going back to our main passage in John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, and spoke of him. So the question is, why was Isaiah willing to preach such an unpopular message? Why was Isaiah willing to end up being disliked, become an outcast to his own people? And the answer is, church, he saw the glory of God for who God really was. He saw him in all his glory in the vision. And likewise, Christ faced opposition. He knew he was going to be rejected as he is being rejected in our passages and finally killed because he also knew the glory of God and lived for it. I wonder if we are that serious about our faith, 
if we would be willing to be mistreated, possibly even be killed, because we are willing to please God, because we've seen his glory more than man. Let's go back to John 12. And we are now in verse 42, where our passages sort of take a little turn here. And we find out that there are some Jews, even among the authorities, that believe in Jesus. That's that's amazing, right? But there's only one problem. There's only one problem. Let's read it. Nevertheless, many even among the authorities believed in him, believed in Christ. But for fear of the Pharisees. Many believed, even among the authorities, but for fear of the Pharisees, it says. It sounds so harmless. For the fear of the Pharisees, fear of others, fear of man, is one of those sins that seems like a really innocent sin to struggle with, right? I mean, honestly, which would we rather confess in front of others? Being a people pleaser or being a liar, right? People, please, it just sounds so much more innocent than a liar, right? I mean, the liar can't be okay with God, but the people pleaser, I mean, they just go overboard to help other people. They're living their life to make others happy. They just have such a sensitive little heart that they just want, and they just want people to not be let, they don't want to let people down, right? Well, in reality, people pleasing is serious, I mean, think about this. The fear of the Pharisees hindered the Jews and the authorities who believed in Christ to truly follow him. This gives us a glimpse, a small glimpse of how dangerous the fear of man really is. Let's read verse 42 in its entirety here. And we start to begin to see the problem of the fear of man. Nevertheless, many even among the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So again, we see that some didn't profess that some didn't profess Christ because of fear of the Pharisees, because the Pharisees had the power to kick them out of synagogue, or in our day it would be to kick them out of church, right? But the question is, why? Why were they so afraid of getting kicked out of synagogue, being kicked out of the church, if they were right? Who were they really worried about, these people-pleasers? Well, this leads to observation number five. The fear of man is a focus on self. The fear of man is a focus on self. As we step away from our passages just for a moment and think about the fear of man or being a people pleaser, we learn that they struggle with the sin because they are really wrapped up in themselves instead of God. But from the outside looking in, the people pleaser looks very godly because usually they are the hardest workers. I mean, they are the first to jump in and sacrifice their time for others. They are often the most encouraging, the most supportive, the most understanding. The people pleaser are often the most hospitable. They are usually great hosts because they want to make sure you are always enjoying yourself up to the fullest. Which leads to takeaway number three. The people pleaser needs people 
more than they actually love people. The people pleaser needs people more than they actually love people. They serve, they help, they minister to others, not because they love them, but because they need people's approval of them. They are desperate for people to think highly of them. They want people to think they are good, that they are smart, that they are unique, that they are special, that they are the best servants in the world. Proverbs 29.5 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. Proverbs says, You are trapped like a rat in a cage when you are a people pleaser because it begins to feed self by pleasing others and it is a vicious cycle like an addiction that goes from wanting people's approval to it becoming like a basic need in your life. The approval addict needs approval of others like our body physically needs water to live. So we begin to live and die on what others think about us. So today, people like me. So life is great. The sun is shining. I'm excited. But when people question my character or I hear someone say something negative about me, all of a sudden I'm down in the dumps. I become full of worry, full of fear, and it can spiral into depression quite quickly. I guess I hurt his feelings. Sorry, Joby. Man. So, I wonder if this fear of man, people-pleasing, resonates with us. I wonder if we struggle with being a people-pleaser. Have there been situations when obeying God means you'll have to let other people down? Do we see God's approval over our family's approval, over our friends' approval, over those that are around us? What is the first question we ask ourselves when we are faced with a certain decision? What would God want me to do in this situation? Or is it, what would my spouse or my friend or my family member want me to do in this situation? Let's finish our verses here. John 12, 42, and 43, to see the entirety, to see the full spectrum of how dangerous the fear of man is. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many even among the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John concludes that the fear of man is terrible not just because it leads us to being selfish, but that people-pleasers desire the glory of man more than the glory of God. Which leads to observation number six. Fear of man is a form of idolatry. Observation number six says that fear of man is a form of idolatry. I know that when I talk about idolatry, it's easy to think about someone bowing down to some wooden statue or graven image, but idolatry, as we would define it, it would be worshiping anything other than God. Or, when we love something more than we love God, we become an idol worshiper. 
fear of man is idolatry that lives for others to serve self. People-pleasing at its core, at its root, is worshiping self over worshiping God. Which leads to takeaway number four, our final takeaway here. I know we had takeaways, observations, rejections. This is the last one here. The people-pleaser has a large view of self while they have a small view of God. Let me say that again. The people-pleaser has a large view of self while they have a small view view of God. I wonder this morning, if we have seen the danger of people pleasing, the danger of the fear of man, if we have seen the trap that it leads to, as it leads right to idolatry. Think about this. The Jews waited with great fervor for the Messiah. And then he came, right? And what was their response? Even those that believed in him, in Christ, they decided not to follow him because they love the glory of man more than the glory of God, it says. That's a scary conclusion. That's a scary description on our lives as well, but is one that we may struggle with this morning. We may be like the Jews who are more worried about what others thought about us than even God himself. We may be sitting here this morning fearful of others while we have no fear of God at all. We know from Proverbs 1.7 that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, right? Do we have such wisdom? Do we actually know the fear of God this morning? Maybe we get a May, may we get a glimpse of the glory of God like the prophet Isaiah, as we read Isaiah 6, who definitely knew the fear of God, right? Let's listen to what he says and see if we have moments like this. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am, I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And from that moment on, Isaiah was never the same. He had a large view of God and a right view of himself and a right view of others. What about us? Do we have a big view of God this morning? Do we see God in all his glory? Or... Do we live for others because we have such a high view of ourselves? May we be a church who lives passionately for God's glory instead of our own. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, thank you for your word that we can just dive deep into. And the deeper we swim, the deeper we can go. And the deeper your spirit takes us to see the depths of the wisdom and the glory of God. Help us to be people who truly love you, who truly have a holy awe of you instead of a holy awe of other people. Instead of idolatry, of being controlled by what other people think about us, help us, Lord, to know you so well that we are willing to let others down because we love you so much. 
We ask, Father, that you help us be a church with a huge, magnificent view of you as we live for your Son. In Christ's name, amen.